Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the December edition of Prospect hits the stands, we're discussing just how relaxed or not can afford to be about the state of the British economy as it prepares to saunter out of the European club. Just how big or not will that disruption be to trade into the city? We speak to one expert who used to set interest rates for the Bank of England and he gives us a prognosis which is pretty unsparing. You know, the record both in the UK under Thatcher and in Europe, frankly, for the last several years has been that shock therapy doesn't have the desired results. I mean, that look at Greece, look at Spain. We'll also consider just how healthy or frail UK PLC is looking even before it embarks on this shock, honing in on the so-called productivity puzzle. And if all the searching economic questions leave us hungry for some novel economic answers, we'll be boarding the ferry to Bilbao, an old industrial citadel that has been reborn as a cultural capital, to find out whether or not the arts can pave a path to prosperity. With me today, down the line from the University of Manchester, is Professor Diane Coyle. And in the studio, we've got the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Adam Posen, and the critic and culture writer, Andrew Dixon. A warm welcome to you all. Now, Adam, we'll start with you because you've written for us this month on Brexit Britain's drawbridge economics, which you make sound very scary indeed. But last year... Project Fear suggested that a Leave vote would see jobs and growth fall away fast, and thus far it hasn't happened. How do you persuade a sceptic that when we actually leave the EU, this time it really is going to hurt? It's fair to caution us overzealous economists from time to time, Tom, but I'm sort of going back to the classics and the economics that has been true for literally thousands of years, which is that you trade most with the places that are closest to you in geographic terms and the places to which you have most networks built up. And this is such a powerful concept. It's called the gravity model of trade that recently archaeologists were able to find lost cities from ancient times because they backwards said, oh, these are trading centers. And they were able to locate in Syria, in Asia Minor, places that were trading partners. This is as good as a physical law as you get in economics. And the bottom line is there in the UK statistics that roughly 60% of UK economy is traded and half of that is with the EU. Or as David Cameron memorably put it when I was at the Bank of England, the UK trades as much with Ireland as it does with Brazil, Russia, India, and China combined. 
So if the UK, as many Brexiteers want, is going to transform itself into this free market, free riding, global trading, it has to escape the bounds of gravity and somehow replace 50% of its trade. And that's just not going to happen. Oh dear. Diane, are you as as glum as uh, Adam on this particular question? Yes, me and uh, nine in ten other economists, because this really goes to the heart of what we understand about about economic progress, which is that it's driven by that process of of specialisation and exchange. And what's bizarre about the Brexit argument is this, this idea that you can get a better free trade scenario for Britain by leaving the EU when the EU is the biggest deepest and most prosperous free trade area that we've that we've ever seen so we're leaving that known ability to better ourselves and and going into the unknown and i'd add as well that those those forecasts the one that was really out of line before the referendum was the treasury's forecast and i don't know what pressures they had put on them and they made assumptions about a budget that didn't uh, didn't happen most economic forecasts have actually turned out to be pretty close to what's happened because the cliff edge hasn't happened yet, although it might happen in a year or so's time. But Diane, I mean, when economists have all been agreed on something, it hasn't always mean that they've been right in the past, has it? I mean, there was the 365 economists wrote to Margaret Thatcher. I guess if you asked economists now whether Margaret Thatcher was right to deflate the economy in the way she did, it might be half and half. There certainly wouldn't be agreement like there was in 1981 likewise with the euro a lot of economists wanted to join that and now most people would think that's a bad idea i mean if you've got a a, a determined um contrarian how would you try and see them off well of course it always depends on uh, on what happens and what people do so uh, behavior plays into any economic forecasts but it also depends on what you think you're forecasting and the analogy that's often used is the difference between a doctor saying if you smoke heavily, you're really very likely to get lung cancer and predicting exactly when it is that your lung cancer will be diagnosed. So on the latter kind of forecast, you can have endless disagreement. But on the fundamental principles, I just don't think there's any arguing with them. Andrew, you come at this from a, a less economics um, angle than our other two. I mean, uh, are they persuading you? I don't think they need to persuade me because so much of the evidence, even I as a non-economist understand, seems to point in exactly the same direction, that it's the craziest thing Britain could possibly do. Certainly the craziest thing that any of us around this table or listening to this podcast have have ever seen. And I guess, yeah, I mean, I I write about culture um, and of course there are sort of specific economic ties to that. But I think also I, I get worried by that sense of distancing ourselves from from the mainland i mean you look at the map and you see how connected we are we've always been um, in terms of what adam's talking about in terms of trade flows diane kind of her sense of of the economics of this as well but i mean just in terms of culture in terms of language in terms of literature we are so much more part of mainland europe and the European project, in the much older sense of that word, a kind of 2,000-old sense of, of that phrase, than any of the Brexiteers would argue. So that's the thing that I, I find upsetting. We are so connected, and to cut ourselves off just seems completely crazy to me. Adam, um, you do acknowledge in your piece that there might be some non-economic arguments oh, of course. in terms of taking back control, feeling maybe more pride again in your community, yeah. in your country by being separate. I mean, you acknowledge those. Do you take them seriously? 
Well, I take them seriously the same way I take the arguments for President Trump seriously. There are voters who believe them, and so I'm required to take them seriously as a danger to everyone's well-being. But that's not the same as taking them seriously intellectually. I mean, I very much agree with Andrew's view. I view Brexit as, at best, a Little England project. The Welsh seem to go along with it, but nobody else wants to. And it is part of this cultural closing in ethno-nationalism, in a sense, which I see in the U.S. and we see in ugly form in Eastern Europe as well. And that generally, you can say that that's people's sovereign right. But if I were a politician or I were a public intellectual in the U.K. beyond economics, I'd be talking about how that is indeed what the European project is trying to get past. That is indeed what a global Britain should not be doing. I have no idea whether that would persuade any of these people. So in that sense, I have to take it seriously. But it's an ethically unsound position, in my view. But there is something odd here that a lot of the Brexit brigade are people who are passionate about free trade, free markets, all the rest of it. You know, the Spectator, a kind of rival current affairs magazine, had a picture of a butterfly with the Union Jack on it, flapping out of a box, you know, out, out of the Union and into the world. And this has been the argument. And the- I, I think there, I think, I mean, Tom, you're absolutely right. There are some people who say that, just like there were some people in the U.S. who are for the Trump, for not just racist reasons, right? These people do exist. Mm. But to the degree it's a serious economic political argument, I, I think there's two misconceptions. The first, which is sort of illustrated by the nice picture you put on my piece in the magazine, is that people perceive being part of the EU as shackles. But it's, as Diane pointed out, the EU is the largest free market zone in the world. And you have to give up something to have access to that. You have to be consistent with their rules and processes to have access to that. It's perfectly reasonable. That was essentially what the British said about the Commonwealth decades ago. And so there is this misconception that you're going to be in splendid isolation, this butterfly, whereas actually you're going to be an ant away from the rest of the colony thrashing about. The second misconception is, as we discussed in the magazine in the article, is that this is sort of a shock therapy for the UK. Mm. That This is kind of like Margaret Thatcher's Tina, there is no alternative. That if we go out there, we will, with the British character and our trading routes and whatever other jargon you wish to throw out, we will suddenly reclaim our heritage as this great global nation. And maybe... But, you know, the record both in the UK under Thatcher and in Europe, frankly, for the last several years, has been that shock therapy doesn't have the desired results. I mean, that look at Greece, look at Spain. So I'm not putting my money on that. (laughs) Whether or not the Brexit shock works as it's meant to, it's certainly one of the biggest jolts we've put through our economy in a very long while. Just as important is the jolt itself is the question of how ready or not the UK is to absorb a shock of this sort. There are some signs of real malaise, most particularly when it comes to our inability to get as much out of our efforts and our work as other countries. The so-called productivity problem is worse, Diane tells us, than it is in other economies like France and America. Now, Diane, how bad is this productivity puzzle that we keep hearing about? And uh, is it getting better or worse at the moment? These issues are linked because I think part of the reason the vote in the referendum went the way it did is there are lots of people around the country who haven't seen their standard of living get any better for a long time and don't have any sense of agency over their own lives to improve it. 
And the UK has a really long-standing productivity problem. The level of um, output for the inputs that we get compared to other countries, it's about a fifth less than comparable countries like Germany and France. And this is what drives living standards over the long term. It's how employers can afford to pay higher real wages over time. So it sounds a very abstract uh, economic jargon concept, and it makes you think about people uh, just being made to work ever harder. But it's actually about um, the efficiency with which we use the people and use the machines and, and how much investment has there been for people to produce economic output. So no one could be against being more productive when you define it like that, as in put in the same amount of effort and get more stuff out. No one's against it. So why, why don't we just copy what the Germans or the Americans or whoever it is are, are doing? What's standing in our way? It's one of those problems where you know what the ingredients are and there have been lots of perfectly decent policies tried in isolation in the past, but we don't know how they all fit together. And they're also in this context where all of the countries have seen their productivity growth slow down for unknown reasons. It might have something to do with demography, it might have something to do with the hangover from the crisis, or it might have to do with the fact that technologies are not delivering now in the way that they used to in the past although that's hotly debated. So we've got a levels problem compared to other countries, and pretty much everybody has this problem about productivity growth being very slow in addition now. Um, so as you say, nobody can be against it. We don't quite know how to fix it, and that's because we haven't understood all the different contributing factors to the outcome and how they fit together, how the jigsaw puzzle fits together. Can you see, Adam, any particular reason why Britain seems to be doing so much worse on this measure than than the other countries you study? Yeah, no, it's it's really difficult. When I was at Bank of England in 2012, near the end of my term, I and actually the governor at the time, Irving King, both came out publicly and said, oh, the productivity is going to pop back up because for 200 years, basically, there's been one trend in the UK and it's not like the Blitz. It's not like we have a bunch of disabled people, God forbid. Mm. There's no reason they can't come back. And we've been proven wrong. I mean, five years later... You know, the productivity is still terrible. And just to emphasize what you, Tom, and Diane were saying, yes, the whole Western world plus Japan has slowed down, but UK has slowed down even more. The UK's performance is absolute worse. So the question is, what's in it? And like Diane says, I'm not sure we have a proper diagnosis. It can't be technology because there's no reason... The reason the UK is doing worse than everybody else can't be technology because the UK has the same literacy in technology and can access the same technologies as France or the US or Germany. It probably isn't the financial crisis, at least not directly, because actually, for better or for worse, there was less of a decline in housing prices. There's been more of a recovery of unemployment, definitely for better, in the UK than there was, say, in the US or in Spain or whatever. So you have to look for something that's idiosyncratic, specific to the UK. And one of the theories that's out there, and Ben Broadbent, who's a current deputy governor of the Bank of England, is associated with this, is that we've somehow messed up capital allocation in the UK because the financial system got so caught up doing these global trading activities and making profits as the market center for the world, it didn't provide funding and allocate credit properly to domestic British business. And this is actually, if you're, you're too young, but there was the Macmillan report. There are reports from the 60s. There's reports going back to the war, First World War in which people complained about the city isn't serving British industry. Mm. But we may have a case now that's really true. Um, and the disruptions to the city and the focus of the city on exporting lots of big money projects has not 
led to good allocation of money in the UK. That's intriguing. And does it, because another piece we've got in the magazine is about how a lot of the city is likely to leave, probably more than anything else, um, if uh, Brexit goes goes ahead in a, in a kind of hard Brexit form. Yeah. So, but there'd just be an opportunity there, you know, in that, like, you know, maybe the capital is going right. to have to be allocated on other things because it won't be able to get wasted on this... Um, <laughs> wasteful casino anymore well yeah i mean in in economics there's always almost always an opportunity when something goes wrong because you have uh underutilized resources you can put them somewhere better but again it's as as i think diane implied it's not going to be like some policy guru be it labor or or tory who's going to come in and say oh if we just push the money from this industry to that industry everything's going to be fine i know you weren't saying that but there are people in the British debate right now who are saying things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's more about creating a mechanism that ships the capital to the right spots, um, which we don't have right now in the UK, arguably. Andrew, um, Dan makes the point, like, she interrogates this concept of um, productivity, that there are parts of the economy, very large parts of the economy, software, teaching, report writing, where it's not obvious that productivity makes sense because you've got this difference between what can be counted and what really counts and i imagine in your beat the world of culture it seems a slightly bizarre concept oh it does yeah and and diane uses this fantastic example of the fact that you can't make a string quartet play any faster you can't make them be more productive the music will take the same amount of time i mean yes i mean you you might be able to kind of shave a couple of seconds off here and there but it's not going to make them more productive in any kind of meaningful sense i mean it's a really interesting concept there isn't it I, i i loved it in diane's piece the kind of trying to get at the the complexity of of these kinds of issues you know what is productivity does it make sense how can we understand it and it reminds me i guess actually a lot about how the funding of culture is talked about that um we can look at outputs and we can look at economic benefits and outputs for instance in investing in theatre in the UK and how that kind of um attracts tourists and keeps theatres running in the west end and this all kind of adds to british business and the british economy but how do you where do you put the money in and how how do you track that kind of investment and how do you make sure that it it follows through in the right places that the right people get supported and i guess maybe the larger question as well does it is that simply an economic issue i mean there there are so many things connected to that to our our broader culture our kind of well-being as a community and as a state and yeah i i I love the uh, the kind of complexity of that kind of argument, the kind of ideological complexity in a way. Um, Diane, it's certainly kind of an idea with a whole load of other ideas um, that are kind of sneaked into it, you think, reading your um, piece. Um, But it's got some very immediate practical implications, hasn't it? Uh, For example, in terms of the Chancellor's budget calculation. Well, the the forecast for the long-term productivity growth rate from the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is independent, is going to have a really um, powerful influence on what the the Chancellor and the Treasury think is available to spend um, or or what implications are for taxes in the budget. And the lower that growth rate, then the less money in the pot. And the OBR has already said um, it's downgrading its long-term forecast for productivity growth, having overestimated it now for for some years. Even though this thing is hazy, even though it might not apply to great chunks of the economy, you know, some experts, boffins, whatever you want to call them in a room are coming up with some numbers. And as a result of which, there will potentially have to be tax rises or um, spending squeezes, further spending squeezes and things like the health service. Well, yes. And the dilemma is that 
if you want to tackle the long-term productivity problem, then one of the things that's going to be needed is an increase in spending on human capital, in other words, health and education, and spending on uh, research and development. And government funding is very important for research as well. Britain compares pretty poorly on uh, a lot of those measures internationally, and it's I think it's fairly obvious that we need to increase public spending in those areas. So that's already a, a pretty horrible dilemma for the Chancellor, never mind what other things he wants to do with the money. And are you optimistic now that um, they will have been jolted into thinking, yes, we do actually need to? Because there's been a lot of talk now for about seven or eight years about maybe it would be nice to spend more money on infrastructure, even while we've got austerity going on. But do you think that the message with this downgrade might finally get through? I don't really know. I think it's a a debate between um, the necessity, especially with the Brexit shock looming, which I'm sure many people in the Treasury um, appreciate, and the kind of confidence you need to make that sort of long-term bet on the future of the economy. And I just don't know which is going to win out in the budget. Well, if Britain is uh, rather threatened with irrelevance and poverty, uh, if we take the gloomiest view of Brexit, then Andrew's been on a little trip, which um, might give it some heart. He's been to the city of um, Bilbao, which was also threatened with irrelevance and poverty not so um, long ago. But Andrew, it's um, had what's now a kind of world-admired cultural and economic renaissance that started, or nearly started, with the uh, opening of the stunning Guggenheim Museum on a bit of post-industrial wasteland. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's the 20th anniversary this autumn of the opening of the Guggenheim, and I thought it was a a good opportunity, as well as obviously having a a free enormous holiday at Prospect's expense, uh, to um, think about investigating uh, the kind of story, which, as you mentioned, has become a kind of case study, even a kind of myth. Um, The idea that by investing in culture, building a big museum, art gallery, concert hall, whatever else, uh, you can help um, a city which is uh, in dire economic straits bounce back. Um, And this is supposedly what Bill Bow did um, in the late 1990s, opening the Guggenheim and a a series of other projects. Uh, And now it's doing pretty well, um, both economically and also culturally. And numerous cities worldwide have tried to copy this. Um, You know, you think of uh, Margate, for instance, in, in, in Britain, you think of Liverpool, you think of Glasgow actually back into the 1980s, a very, very early example of this. And we have all this city of dance, city of culture. There's always an effort to do it now, isn't there? There is, absolutely. And it, it's become a sort of process in a way that, you know, the answer to your economic problems, particularly if you're some kind of post-industrial city struggling to find its purpose, mm-hmm. is, to, is to build some kind of huge cultural space. And this can pr- provide sort of add-on effects and multiplying effects. You can attract investment, you can attract tourism, you can help turn and shift the economy of the place um, and and transform it. And as I say, this is supposedly the idea of uh, what's happened in Bilbao. But when you went speaking to people around Bilbao, you heard very mixed reports, didn't you, as whether it had worked out as uh, advertised or not? Well, exactly. People often talk about the, the Bilbao effect, or sometimes people even talk about the Bilbao miracle, um, you know, sort of tracing it back to the opening of the Guggenheim. But the fascinating thing is when you when you go there and you talk to people, you suddenly realise that the one place that has not had a Bilbao effect is Bilbao. Because, of course, actually, for all that the, the museum, the Guggenheim, opened 20 years ago, by that stage, there'd been something like a decade's worth of work and investment completely turning around the city, building a huge infrastructure, series of infrastructure projects, 
projects. You've got a new metro designed by Norman Foster. So the, the museum wasn't in isolation. And the second myth, actually, which completely astonished me when I interviewed, um, in fact, the director of the, the museum, was that, that tourism still only accounts for 5% of Bilbao's economy. That The reason that the Basque country looks pretty healthy compared to the rest of Spain these days has a lot more to do with its continuing strength in high-tech manufacturing and uh, various other kinds of industries than it does with the fact that there are you know, a lot of Richard Serra sculptures next to the, the bank of and, and the they, river. Are they kind of piggybacking on the Guggenheim or is that were they there anyway? Did they never go away? Well, I think partly they, they never went away. Um, and I think there's a lot of government effort and, and investment. And I'm, I'm sure Adam knows far more about this than I do. Um, but I, I think actually that's the interesting thing is the moment you look at this issue, a little bit like with a productivity issue, you just realise how incredibly complicated it is. You know, is the fact that Bilbao is these days doing pretty well, looks pretty good as a city, is that to do with the museum or is it to do with the fact that cheap flights suddenly became available in the 1990s? You know, is it to do with the internet and the growth of of communications globally? Is it to do with the continued strength of high-tech manufacturing in the Basque country? You know, there are so many different effects here and it's very, very difficult to to, to kind of pin it to, to, to one thing, let alone one museum, which I guess is why so many cities worldwide have really struggled when they've tried to do a Bilbao and copy this effect. They haven't managed to do it. Diane, speaking to us from Manchester, there's um, something of a wider cities effect that's been going on in the last 10 or 20 years, isn't there? Like where growth has often been stronger in city centres. Yes, growth is always stronger in, in cities because it's that density of people and markets that drives the process. And that's only increased with the new technologies because it's paradoxically more important for people to be close to each other and have face-to-face contact with those than with older technologies. But the mistake, I think, in this uh, idea that you can have Bilbao effect is thinking that you, you only need one thing to make it all spark off into a new growth dynamic. There's never just one thing. It's always lots of things that you've got to get lined up. In Manchester, a lot of people said it was... Uh, Perhaps it was the IRA bomb that took out a a, a nasty shopping centre in the city centre and created a lot of space. Or perhaps it was the Commonwealth Games. And actually, lots of different things contributed. And for Manchester, which um, is now uh, growing very strongly, uh, it's been a a combination, a sustained effort over 25 years to get lots of policies right, not just cultural and not just sporting. Adam, is this business of redevelopment through culture, is that familiar in the United States in the same way it is here? Oh, quite. Um, we had in Cleveland, for example, the famous Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was used to help turn around the downtown of Cleveland. And you can see the annual ceremony on your TV here in the UK. And downtown Cleveland does look a lot better than it did. But very much in keeping with Andrew's characterization of Bilbao, it, it has some spiritual sense. It has some awareness and communications and branding, if I dare use that word. Mm. But it, most of the benefits are cultural and not material market benefits, and they're not about not what enough to drag the rest of the Rust Belt. You know, Cleveland is part of sort of the Mid-North, the equivalent of the Mid-North in the UK, that mm. it's formerly heavy industry and it's not there anymore but for the most part. And you can't replace that easily. I wanted to pick up just quickly on something else, which Andrew is well aware of, and goes to your point about cities. Mm. In that, one of the things we've seen in the vote for Brexit, in the vote for Trump in the U.S., in what's going on in Germany, is a divide between rural and urban, that the ideological divide is quite great. Mm. And the economic divide is quite great. And perhaps London versus the rest, or the southeast versus the rest of the U.K. is one of the most extreme examples Mm. 
in the rich world. And so it all kind of reinforces. It's not just economic. So you think of Bilbao, partly they come up, as I know Andrew deals with, as they are the Basque country. This is a very separate identity region in Spain, and this is, notwithstanding recent events in (laughs) Catalonia, this is a place that had a lot of devolution, probably more than, as much or more than Scotland had here. And Bilbao kind of makes it, but it doesn't solve these fragmentation problems within Spain or these divides of identity or region. And so bringing us back to Brexit or culture, people like me, I loved living in London. I would love to move back someday. I, I try to serve the UK as best I can. But it's in part because I want to live in the cosmopolitan city. Mm. And as much as I enjoyed my visits to Newcastle and even to Skegness, I'm not moving back to go to Skegness. I mean, it's um, in voting patterns, um, in economics, in all sorts of ways. We're seeing this kind of small town big city divide, um, Andrew. I mean, and uh, I know that Andy Burnham, who's just become the mayor of Manchester, is very, very seized by this idea that, like, there's been a lot of regeneration, but it sort of starts and stops in Manchester city centre. And if you're, you know, these outlying towns like Rochdale or whatever, then things are still quite grim. What did you pick up, if anything, about how far the Bilbao effect has been permeating the rest of the Basque country? Well, I think that's the interesting question. Um, You know, if you accept there is such a thing as a Bilbao effect, we can debate what it is, but certainly there's some kind of effect going on there. To my eye, it seemed to disappear about 10 minutes out of the city centre because you travel into those working class neighbourhoods, which, you know, know, as I describe in the piece, they're they're not ghettos. Um, They look uh, pretty unkempt. They're clearly, as I say, quite kind of blue collar working class. Um, But at the same time, you know, the idea that tourists are going to be kind of want drifting through there or they're going to be nice boutiques opening up um, is just not going to happen. That's that that's fantasy. And I guess, you know, what's sort of interesting about that question, I think, is another issue with the with the Bilbao model and maybe the broader regeneration issues, which are that, you know, the cost that can come with this, if you regenerate a city, Manchester are a good example, and you rejuvenate it and you uh, suddenly do over the high street and you fill it with coffee shops and everything else, then what happens to the people who were previously in those spaces? You know, if you gentrify everything, do you just simply throw people even further and further and further out of the city? And I think that has happened in Bilbao. You know, you can walk to the city of centre and it looks absolutely beautiful on a, a lovely autumn morning but as I say you know take the, the train 10 minutes out of the, out of the centre and you are in a, in a different city and I think the people who live in those places feel almost ostracised from the centre of the city they don't feel it's their city anymore they're not permitted to go there so I think those sorts of insidious cultural effects are also worth talking about. Um, Adam's nodding in the studio as well Diane but I mean, does that sound a little bit too glum? I mean, presumably, if you do gentrify a city centre, then people who live on the out, you know, people might find that the prices go up in the city centre, but there'll be a lot more jobs for people to commute into the city centre too. It should, there should be more than a zero-sum game here, right? Oh, it's one of the constant dilemmas of of gentrification and and economic growth generally, isn't it? I grew up in Manchester in the 1960s and 70s. It was an awful, depressed place then with um, all the mills closing down, high unemployment, a, a you know, very bleak city centre. It's incomparably better now. So I, I, it, I'm very clear that it's been a good thing to happen. That doesn't mean that you stop worrying about the places that have not kept up with that pace of growth and the amenities that, that go with it. It's a little bit unpredictable. The town I grew up in, 
uh, which is called Ramsbottom, was particularly bleak in those days. And now it's um, got delicatessens and uh, festivals and all, all kinds of stuff. But I think there needs to be an offer for all the other places in the same region. And in my mind, it's a sort of universal basic infrastructure offer. You've got the transport, you've got the um, education and health services of high enough quality so that people there have a decent standard of living and the opportunity to go and do other things elsewhere if that's what they want to do. Thank you very much. And that is it for Headspace this month. Huge thanks to Diane as well as Adam and Andrew. The December edition of Prospect magazine is in the shops from Thursday the 15th. Now, it features all three of these splendid essays and more besides, including a profile of Britain's most powerful woman. No, not Theresa May, but the new Supreme Court president, Brenda Hale. We also hear from Cathy Ashton, the British diplomat who negotiated the deal with Iran that Trump is seeking to destroy. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. And don't forget to try out our new weekly podcast series, How to Fix, with Steve Bloomfield. It soars above the political fray and drills into the big policy questions that Westminster would rather leave in the too difficult box. That's at prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. We'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks very much for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.